If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, if, if, while you're turning there, we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 33 again. Uh, last week, we looked at it through the lens of what we called Christ-like authority. We, we saw the calling there on husbands uh, to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's that, it's that sacrificing and sanctifying love that we're charged with as believing husbands. And this week, we're looking at it again through the lens of what we're calling uh, Christ-like submission. So, so what we want to do here is if you're just... If you're willing and able, I'd ask that you just stand with me now as we look together at the Word of God to us uh, this morning. This is Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start there in verse 22 and go through uh, verse 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might, sorry, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the ways that it challenges us, for the way that it is is, uh, called to shape and to fashion us, to, to make us more and more like Christ, to put the heart of Christ into your people. And so we pray that you would do that for us here this morning, that you would use your word uh, to to shape us, to fashion us, to conform us to your will and to your word. Lord, we pray that you would do that for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When we jumped into this study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we decided to call this a series. We And, and I'm calling it a series. is kind of playing fast and loose with that. It's just a study of Ephesians. But we called this study or this series Vintage Community. And we chose this letter... Uh, during this season of life for a reason. It's because as a, as a fairly new church and as a growing body of people with, with new faces, new families, all learning how to, how to walk together in this life, we wanted to set before us what God truly desires for us to be as His people, as His new creation, sons and daughters, serving and striving together for His glory. And, and God gives us that picture here. Ephesians 5, like if you take Ephesians 5, really really the whole chapter, it's this fairly detailed picture of what God desires for us to, for what he desires for us to be, uh, for us to do, and really for us to look like as his people in this world. It, it demonstrates that God has a vision for how his people will walk 
in this world. Because what we know is that walking isn't optional. Like we, we all of us walk. We all have this manner of, of life. That, that's what the walk is in scripture. It's not just, it's not just one foot after another. It's the whole manner of being what we it's the manner of being that we carry with us in the world. So, so if you are living, here's the reality, if you are living according to Scripture, you are walking. And chapter 5 has been a picture for us of, of what a Christian walking in Christ as a new creation looks like. And I, I think it's important that we see our passage today, like really see it in the context of the chapter as a whole, because the danger with any passage, and maybe specifically with these verses, is to see them, is to try and see them on their own. That's that's what happens a lot of the time. Like we will take a verse and we and we just and we'll remove it from its context. We grab hold of a verse we like and we and we throw it around without any concern for like the nuance or the or the meaning that comes from from the passage as a whole. So, so like for instance, so like here's just one example. But over in Luke. 1037, Jesus says these words. He says, you go and do likewise. That, that's the quote. He says, you go and do likewise. Now, now listen, in, in the hands of a madman, that's a terrifying sentence, right? If, if it, it, because it can mean anything. Like, you go and do likewise could be a license for all sorts of stuff. If you, like, if you, so if you see a toddler running out in traffic, you go and do likewise. If, if, if you, if you see, if you see one of your friends, like, attacking or lashing out at someone online because, because they don't agree with them, which has become very, very popular, you go and do likewise is, is, is really, really bad advice. And, and so the fact that Jesus, here, here's why that's important, and, in Luke 10, where he says, you go and do likewise, the fact that he is talking about showing mercy to our neighbor, and specifically our neighbor in need, like the good Samaritan did, that's what Luke 10, that's what the parable is there in Luke ten thirty seven. He's talking specifically in context, you go and do likewise. It's pretty critical to understanding uh, what he's really getting after in that verse. And so when we divorce a, a verse from its context, what often happens is people take the word of God and they twist it and they turn it and they, and they shape it like to, to meet their priorities, to meet their demands, to serve their purposes. And even if we're, if we're straight about it, they, they use them to serve their prejudices. Like you might think of, of like colonial American slave owners twisting God's word to keep slaves in some sort of in some sort of idea of a God designed subjugation, right? Even they, in fact, we'll get to that in Ephesians six. We'll see the verses that were often used as a way to keep this 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 slave down. And we're not talking about indentured servitude. We're not talking about like sort of first century slavery. We're talking about the chattel slavery of the American uh, colonial era, which is, which is, which is no, there's no redeeming that it's wicked in every way. And yet people use scripture at the time to try and control to control their slaves. But, but the word of the Lord isn't meant to serve us in our mission, right? It's meant to conform us. It's meant to shape and mold and re, it's really meant to renew us as we serve God in his redemptive mission. And that's what we have before us today. Like Ephesians 5 is giving us direction on living as God's people, as, as living as his 
sons and his daughters. And it begins back in verse 1. Like it really does. It begins all the way back in verse 1 of chapter 5 where he calls us to be, here's what he says, to be imitators of God. Right? Be imitators of God. And verse 2 tells us that the way we begin to do that is to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And that should sound familiar, right? If, like if you were here last year, those words, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, that sounds familiar. It's the same calling that we see on the husband. In verses 3 and 4, they call us to walk in purity of heart and body. And so that means that there are things that we, as his people, as his family, there are things that we embrace and there are things that we reject in our lives. And God's word gives us guidance on that. Verse 4 calls us to be thankful, right? So recognizing what God has done for us in Christ, he says, let there be thanksgiving. And this, and this, listen, this only makes sense, right? Like if Jesus has redeemed us from Satan, sin, and death, if we really believe that, that he has redeemed us through his sacrifice, through the sacrifice of his life in our place, that he has saved us, how could we be anything other than thankful? How could we not be grateful? Yeah, we're told to not become partners with the world in verse 7. And that, that doesn't mean that we don't love the world, right? That, that doesn't mean that we don't care about what's happening around us. We are called unapologetically to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what Jesus said. He, he's, he's very clear about it. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the that's second commandment that's just like the first. That's just as great as the first one. He's unapologetic about that. But what it means is that as those who have a renewed outlook on the world, who see now with God's eyes, with redeemed eyes, we don't just get swept up in the cultural current around us. But we, here's verse 8, is that we, like over and at times against the darkness around us, what are we called to do? Look at verse 8. Walk as children of light. And he gets very practical with us here. Verse 15 tells us to... It tells us to walk in wisdom. Verse 16 tells us to make the best use of our time. Verse 18 tells us explicitly, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19 tells us to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we're called to support one another in worship, right? Like this is what we gather to do each Lord's Day. We're modeling this each week for one another and praying. Here's our prayer. We're really praying that it carries over during the week. Like what we do here in worship should serve as a model. Like we're our liturgy, our order of worship should serve as a model for us as we go out into the world. That's our prayer each and every week. And then we're called, here's verse 21, right? We're called to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It doesn't just say, like, at one point, go and submit out of reverence for Christ. It says that this is an ethic of our life. This is what we're to be doing, to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's the call on all of us. All right? And so, it, so it's not a stretch to say that the whole of the Christian life is meant to be marked by humble submission. And see, the Spirit leads us as sons and daughters of God into the new creation family, into the new, it, it brings us into that new creation community. And it's in the family of the faith, it's in this vintage community of faith that we engage in regular, 
ordinary and practical acts of humble service to one another. It's, it's where we image Christ, his reflected glory bouncing off of his people is where we image Christ to one another. And then Paul brings this into our lives. And the flow here is important. All right, there's a little distinction that can get lost when we read this passage in, in the English translation. You see the word for submit. You see that word there in verse 22. If you look, you'll see that word for submit. That's the word that, that gets people up in arms every once in a while. It's not even really there in verse 22. Like that word is not there in the original language. And so what it really reads like, if you, if you take this in the, as the way it's presented in the Greek to us, it says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as unto the Lord. You see, I point that out because this verse has become sort of charged in our day, right? Like we don't like the idea of submission in general. We're, we're, that, we're sort of that never give up, never surrender culture like we, we are here's here's one that's been sort of popular here recently we're this like all gas no brakes that's the mindset right that nothing can stop us by the way that that has to be one of the most dangerous and silly uh catchphrases that has ever that has ever come across humanity right to the idea of all gas no brakes if you hit the gas all the time like you're you you're going to crash and more than and you're probably going to die i mean like that's and yet we have grabbed hold of that as a culture, as if that speaks to an ethic that we should embrace, right? And so the call to submit, right? The call to submit is, has become sort of an incendiary statement. It's a counter-cultural call that, that really seems misplaced to our ears. But, but we need to remember that Jesus didn't come to us. Like, here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to earth and beg us to be his friend. Like he didn't come to us desperate for some people to hang out with and beg us to live our best life now with him. No, he came and here's what he said. He came and said, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. You might remember it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a famous uh, German pastor and theologian, the same one who, uh, who ultimately was killed on a Nazi scaffold a few weeks before the end of World War II. He's the one who said, and this is a powerful quote. It comes from his book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So the Christian faith, here, here it is. The Christian faith is inherently countercultural. It's It's meant to be that way. Because here's the thing, a suffering, dying Savior is folly to the world. Like a savior who rides in on a donkey is folly to people looking for a savior on a chariot or, or, or maybe in a presidential limo, right? Like the savior on the donkey is foolishness. The savior dying on the cross is foolishness. And so it makes sense that, here it is, it makes sense that the life our savior calls us into will look like foolishness to a watching world. It's, it's, so so if, the, if it's the aim of your life, to simply fit in with those around you. Like, let's just be honest. Christianity is going to be a problem. But if the aim of your life, if the chief end of your life is the glory of your creator, if that's your desire, then Christianity, right, walking in the way of Jesus, walking the way of humble, sacrificial service, is, is the only way that we can actually that we're actually called to walk. And marriage, here, here's marriage now, is meant to be, it's really meant to be this living parable 
for the world of the love of Christ for his church. And so the wife is called into the same duty that all of us are called into toward one another. She's called into this specific role in the home as as proof that the life of Christ, that spirit-filled new creation life, is not meant to live, not meant to be lived in a vacuum. And what Paul's doing here is he's he's showing that how we live in our homes, right? How we image Christ in our homes to one another, how we adorn our lives with the light of Christ is, is where we see gospel credibility established. And the wife is called to, she's called to this counter-cultural gospel duty to demonstrate the submission of Christ in marriage. But but here's but submission, listen, submission is not subservience. Submission is not an unquestioning obedience to any and all things. Now, that's how some of us have, have been conditioned to think about this, right? Like, if you, if you listen to the world's commentary on a passage like this, it's like, oh, okay, now this is just Paul being a bit of a chauvinist, right? It's just Paul trying to, to, protect, to protect the patriarchy, right, that finds him in a position of power and authority. Listen, that is only a legitimate complaint. It's only a legitimate complaint. It's only a legitimate critique if you divorce this passage from the whole of Scripture. Remember the words of Jesus on marriage. This is back in Matthew 19. Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24 when he says that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So two things becoming one thing. And Paul quotes Jesus here in verse 31. He quotes Jesus, who's quoting Genesis. There's this, and there's this idea that of, of the two becoming one that runs from now from Genesis to Ephesians 5. And ultimately, we see it in, in Revelation, right? At the consummation of all things. But Brian Chapel, here's what he points out. He says this. He says, these words tell us that submission is the pouring of oneself into the completion of another. It is the sacrificing of self to make a relationship and those in it whole. I want to read that one more time. There's a lot going on there, but he says this. He says, the words, these words tell us that submission is the pouring of oneself into the completion of another. It is the sacrificing of self to make a relationship and those in it whole. Listen, this is the high and beautiful calling of the wife. And marriage is to bring, it's to bring all her gifts, is to bring all her strength, is to bring all of her wisdom, is to bring all of her faith and action into the marriage. Submission isn't about conquering or subduing. It's certainly not about slavish obedience to every whim of the husband. No, it's a, it's not about passive suppression. It's about active expression. Right, is the faithful husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church, as he takes seriously the duty of sacrificial love within the home, setting the example for his wife and his children, owning and embracing the calling to nurture, to care, to repent at times, and to shepherd his wife and family into deeper communion and fellowship with the Lord. To love with that sanctifying love that points them all to Jesus. He is loving as Christ loved. And the wife, no less than the husband, is demonstrating the love of Christ as well. John Stott says this. He says, the wife's submission is but another aspect of love. It is to give oneself up to somebody. He, here's what he asks. He asks, what does it mean to love? And he says, it is to give oneself up to somebody. That's a simple definition of what it means to love. To give oneself up to somebody. It's a call 
It's a call to the same love that we see in Jesus as he submitted himself, right? As he gave himself up for us, as he submitted himself to the will of the Father for our sake. His whole, his whole life was a life of service and sacrifice. His whole life was a life of, of both godly authority and godly submission for the sake of, really for the sake of the elect, for the sake of us, for those he calls. He emptied himself for us. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, right? This is the living parable that's proclaimed in the loving submission of God's people to one another. And particularly, if we can just be, like we need to go hard on this, and particularly in our homes, that's where it begins. And this is the duty that's entrusted to Christian wives, and there's more than just a duty to their, this calling. There, there's also a dignity. And we need to take note that nowhere in this passage, nowhere in this passage is a wife or a woman called to submit to all men in all things. Nowhere does it say that all men have authority over all women as some at, uh, have at times set things or at least asserted, right? That's, that's, not, that's not what this passage is about. And looking back at the very beginning, when, when God set things in order according to the counsel of his own will, Matthew Henry, he, he famously pointed out that, here's, here's what he said, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. This, this, is, this is the glorious complementary nature of how God has made us. What did Adam say? This now is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. And we have different abilities, right? We have different roles, different callings. Jesus, Jesus knew this. You know, I, I was, here's what I was struck this week as I was reading in Mark 10. I'm trying to keep up with our our New Testament reading plan. I'm I'm working on I'm working on a whole uh, Bible reading plan this year as well. But I really want to be faithful to this New Testament reading plan, and so I'm, I'm I'm keeping it up. And I was in Mark 10, so that's if you're if you haven't started yet, right? We're in we're in Mark 10. We haven't even got that far. And by the way, we started in Mark one, so that's how far we are. And in Mark 10, here's what Jesus does. He He's, he begins uh, specifically teaching about divorce. And, and what he's doing is he's really, he's really undoing much of what the culture of his time had accepted, right? Men, men, men held all the power. Women were essentially, they were powerless, completely subservient, independent. Men were divorcing their wives over the most frivolous of things, sending them away. And Jesus is, what he's doing is he's bringing them back to, to God's vision for marriage. Right? He's, he's bringing them back to God's vision of, of one man and one woman becoming one flesh. And so he begins, with, he begins with this picture of what it's meant to be. Right? Jesus always begins not with, he doesn't just begin with how things are. Right? He recognizes how things are. He sees the brokenness, but he doesn't begin with how things are. But he begins with how things are meant to be, how things are designed to be. He begins with how things were called and formed by God to be. And so this is happening there. And then and, and James and John, right, two of his disciples, they come to him and they ask him, they ask Jesus to let them sit at his left hand and his right hand in glory. That's, that's their request. And it's a, that is a bold request. All right, this isn't something you do on a whim. They've been thinking about this. They've been angling for this. They didn't just, they aren't just walking down the road and go, hey, Jesus, it'd be cool if, we, if, if I could sit here and, and he could sit there. No, no, they have been thinking about this. As they built up the courage and they come in boldness and they ask to, to sit at his left hand and his right hand. And the other disciples, they're like, seriously, man? 
And it says, here's what it says. It says that when the 10, so the other 10 disciples, when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So, so listen, they're not happy. They see the pride. They see the self-serving nature. They see the cry for prestige. They see that cry for position. They see that, that cry for prominence. And they get very upset. That's what it means to be indignant. And, and we can understand that. Like if nothing else, it's just very obnoxious when people try to claw their way to the top, when they try to strategize and angle their way to the top. And here's what Jesus says. It's how he responds to James and John. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But, that's a big one, and this is verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, that's what Paul, that's what Paul is getting at here in Ephesians 5. He's looking at the church And he's looking at Jesus, he's looking at Christ, and effectively saying, here's what he's doing, he's saying, you go and do likewise. See what Jesus has done. You go and do likewise. I think that's actually an appropriate application of that verse. You go and do likewise. As the husband lives out this mandate, not to be served, but to serve. And the wife responds with respect, right? She finds him honorable, like even when he fails, like, because it's not that he has, he doesn't have license to just run free, but he has this heavy responsibility, this God-appointed responsibility to lead as, to, to lead well, to, to image Christ in the home. And she has the responsibility to join in that work as a true partner, as, as one flesh, right? And, and there's great dignity in that. She is worthy of both honor and respect as she fulfills the calling on her life. And so we come back. Here's what we do. We come back to the same question we asked husbands last week. And it's the question, this question is legitimate for every believer regardless of marital status. We're called, we're being called to ask, here's husbands specifically, we're being called to ask if our wives are more like Christ because of our love for them. Now we could all ask this about anybody around us. Like is your neighbor more like Christ, more like Jesus because of the way that you love them? I mean, this is, we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves, right? And we want to be like Christ. Is your coworker more like Jesus because of your love for them? Are the parents on your kid's baseball team more like Jesus because of the way that you love them, because of the way you, you treat them, the way you care for them? We do, we do this with wives, right? Wives, are your husbands more like Jesus by the way you encourage and support and love them? That's a valid question out of this passage. Wives, are your husbands more like Jesus because of the way you love them? And Paul comes to us with this challenge. And he sort of meets us where we are particularly weak. The, the men are called to the sacrificial side of Christ's love. We're called to surrender our lives, to lay us at our pride, to walk in humble service, to point our wives to Jesus. That's the calling, men. That's the calling on us. And, and yes, we drop the ball. Like we fumble it all the time. One of the best ways we can love our wives as Christ loved the church is demonstrate the repentance that Christ has given, has, has enabled us to, to partake in 
through his death for us. It's demonstrating our gospel reliance on our Savior. That's one of the best ways we can love our families. When we fumble the ball, we don't pick it up and just run everybody over. We, we sit there and we, we repent. We demonstrate gospel repentance. Now, there's not a perfect husband in the room. If you're looking around like, you don't know my guy, trust me, there's not a perfect husband in this room. If you, if you, and, and don't hear me saying that I'm it. I mean, you ask, you come up to Laurie after the service right now and ask Laurie. She will tell you. She has, she, has, she has absolute license to tell you today all the ways I fail her. Do not hear me standing up here going, guys, you need to get your heads right and do like I do. I, I'm, I'm saying we need to, as a people, find ourselves at the foot of the cross looking at Jesus going, that's the one. That's the model. And listen, sacrificial love is not natural. It's really not. We're naturally a pretty selfish species, right? But we don't, here it is, we don't settle for what's naturally broken. And we don't settle for what we are. We strive for what God intends for us to be. And the women are called to surrender their lives, to lay aside their pride, to point their husbands to Christ. That's the dignified duty of the wife. That's the calling, women. It's not to grab after control of the home, but to, but to walk as one flesh with your husband. It's not mindless submission. It's not slavish obedience to every stupid idea he has. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is humbly and compassionately challenge him. He's meant to be the spiritual leader in the home. He's meant to be a living sign pointing his family to Jesus, pointing his family to our Savior. And so the call on the wife to submit, it is not a call to second-tier status. It's not. It's a call to help him, to help your husband, to help your partner live out the calling that God has put on his life as you live out the calling God has put on your life. Both of us are called to live contrary to how the way the world around us tells us to live. This is the redemptive calling of marriage. And it's a model for us, for all of us in the church. It's where dignified duty Becomes our delight as we walk in obedience to God's design for us. And yes, we are going to trip and we are going to stumble and we are going to fall. But there is no doubt that one of the best things the church can offer the world today is a picture of what healthy, biblical, Christ-honoring, godly marriage looks like. And when we fall, when we, when we stumble in this, we, we lean we lean on the grace of God. We lean on Christ. And we praise Him for His willingness to forgive, for His willingness to show grace, to set before us that pattern as we walk. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, You know how often and how creatively I tend to fail in my role as a husband. This, this God appointed, Your appointment to me as a husband, as a father, Lord, Lord, you know the struggles that we as husbands and wives, those as as your people have to live out this calling, to walk as children of light. Lord, would you strengthen us today? It's a nasty day, Lord. It's it's cold, it's wet. There's There's not a flake of snow in the sky, even though we were hoping. And so we're going to have a lot of time this afternoon in our homes together. Lord, help us to love one another as you have loved us. Help us in that, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.